0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing
2: everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioural health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder
1: made possible. Learn more at Evernorth.com/slash wonder.
3: Do you remember what you were doing on the 9th of November 1983? For most people, it was a pretty unremarkable day. And yet it could very well have been the last day of their lives. In today's episode of the History Extra podcast, We're going to explore the moment when the world teetered on the brink of nuclear annihilation, without hardly anybody even realising it.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, where the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's podcast, I've been talking to the historian Taylor Downing, whose new book, 1983, The World at the Brink, tells the little-known story of the Able Archer scare, when the Soviet leadership interpreted a NATO war game as being the prelude to a nuclear attack, and prepared to launch a devastating response. I met up with Taylor in our London offices a little while back and began by asking him to describe the situation in the Cold War in the year 1983.
2: The Cold War is often seen as one monolithic period, whereas it really isn't at all. There are whole, many different stages, many different chapters, if you like, of the Cold War. There's the early days when the alliance from the Second World War, the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain, breaks up very, very quickly. Churchill talks about the Iron Curtain that is descending across Europe in 1946. So there's the early stages where the two sides are sort of positioning against each other and eventually the lines of the Cold War are drawn. There's a the very tense period of the 60s, probably epitomised by the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 62. Um, and really that that, that that is a peak in a sense of, of at that point, both sides think we, we've got to do something to, to draw back from this. And a period several years follow of of a period that historians call the 1970s, particularly a period of détente. And come the end of the 70s, many people, particularly on the right in America, are beginning to think that the Soviets are taking advantage of the Americans, that this period of apparent reconciliation, uh, where both sides look as though they're going to get on with each other, the Helsinki Accords in 1975... um, Uh, Nixon and Kissinger very keen to draw the Soviets in to get along with the Soviets and also with China communist China that after a few years of that, the, many Americans are beginning to feel that that they're being taken advantage of, that the Soviet is using this period of time to rearm, to re-equip, uh, to prepare for a, a more violent stage of the Cold War. And particularly in the third world, they feel, Americans are beginning to feel that they're losing, that everywhere, the Soviet Union is on the attack, if you like, is, is moving forward, is taking over territories in Africa, in Latin America, uh, in Asia. And when Reagan is elected in uh, 1980, Ronald Reagan elected to the White House, he is determined to strengthen the United States again. He wants to negotiate with the Soviet Union, but he wants to negotiate from a position of strength. So he begins the biggest period of rearmament outside a war in America's history. Uh, the Pentagon get just about everything they want. They get new bombers. They get a massive reinforcements to the Navy. They get new fighter aircraft. They get new tanks. Uh, a huge investment into military expenditure, which almost doubles over the, the period of Reagan's presidency, because he wants to confront the Soviets to negotiate, but from a position of strength.
3: Can we talk a little bit about what the balance of nuclear forces was at this
2: time? I mean, how
3: how many warheads the two sides have had? What kind of numbers are we talking about?
2: It's difficult sometimes to get to the absolute bottom because a lot of this, of course, at the time was shrouded in secrecy and there's still quite a lot of debate about the exact numbers... Of warheads that both sides had. I mean, very roughly, uh, there was about eighteen thousand nuclear warheads in 1983. Many of these are multiple warheads. One missile will have several different warheads that can all be targeted. So a, a missile sitting in a silo in the Midwest of the United States, or in a, one of the huge silos um, in Russia, where they had three or four 120, 140 tonne missiles waiting for the launch. Each of these would have had several Warheads, and each warhead was probably a hundred sometimes two hundred times the power of the hiroshima bomb, so the the destructive capability that both sides had was not only enough to destroy the other but pretty well to destroy well human life and certainly all civilization on the planet and, and this is where this idea of mutually assured destruction
3: came in that essentially it would be against both sides interest to have a nuclear war because the destruction would be complete.
2: Yes, Um, it was originally called Assured Destruction, Uh, with the concept that if you fired on the other guy, then he would fire back at you uh, and destruction of your country would be assured. In other words, taking an offensive act would be an act of suicide, of national suicide. Somebody thought in the 60s, to add the word mutual before it, mutual assured destruction, which neatly um, is the acronym MAD, and many people, Reagan himself included, thought this was completely MAD. Reagan was told by his Pentagon chief that we could fight a nuclear war. There might be a hundred million American dead, but that America could still win a nuclear war. And Reagan says this is nonsense. Reagan is a very interesting character, and I think, from certainly from my research, rather changed my mind about, about Reagan. Uh, I'd always seen him as a slightly odd character a sort of actor who read other people's lines very literally he was a president who who read the speeches of others but writing this book 1983 has really really made me admire Reagan very much more than I ever did at the, at the time and have done since because he is from the beginning he 's opposed to nuclear weapons. He actually wasn 't in favor of dropping the the bomb on Hiroshima in one thousand nine hundred and forty five when he was president of the Actors' Guild in Hollywood. Um, he was very worried about the growth of nuclear weapons in the 60s the huge escalation in the numbers and just before he becomes president, he visits the Strategic Air Command in a giant hidden in a giant mountain in the in the west of America. Uh, and he is horrified to find that there is actually no defence against nuclear missiles. The only defence is this assured destruction, that the other side know if they launch their missiles, they will be destroyed. If the Soviets launch their missiles, that the United States will launch its, and that, that both sides will be destroyed and that, and that it's that deterrence that keeps the world at peace. And Reagan was actually very shocked Surprising really to think that a man who'd been governor of the state of California, who'd been very senior in politics for some time, didn't hadn't grasped the notion that that there was no defense or the only defense against nuclear weapons or a nuclear attack was your own threat of attack on the on the other side. And so from the beginning of his presidency, Reagan is really determined to do what he can uh to rid the world of nuclear weapons, to destroy the, the, the nuclear threat, because he thinks it is mad, this notion that you can fight a war, lose 100 million people, but still, according to some Pentagon general, you can still win. And this, sort of, this is one of the themes of his presidency. Difficult to believe in the first years, because he's, he's increasing the military budget so so considerably. But underlying his whole attitude is that he would like to try to get to a position where nuclear weapons can effectively be abolished. Uh, and later in the 1980s in his meetings with Gorbachev in the summits at Geneva and most notably at Reykjavik in Iceland, um, they very nearly get to the position of abolishing nuclear weapons. The world would be very different today had they just gone that extra bit and in the in the late 1980s, early 1990s started to abolish nuclear weapons. But Reagan's view is that uh, a nuclear war should not be fought because it cannot be won.
3: So how do you square these, these two visions of Reagan? On the one hand, a man, as you say, who's Horrified at the prospect of a nuclear war, but on the other hand, someone who, early on in his presidency, ratchets up the tension with the Soviet Union and is building up America's nuclear forces.
2: I think, I think what, what comes out very strongly in, in my research into the background to 1983 is that the Americans had no real understanding of what the Soviet leaders were thinking. They had great intelligence when it came to Soviet missile systems, Soviet weapons, the capability of their weaponry, uh, what their missiles could do, how fast their aircraft could fly, where they were positioned, and, and so on. So the US intelligence establishment has a tremendous amount of data and intelligence about the technical and technological capability of the Soviet side, but it has absolutely zero insight into the thinking of the Kremlin leadership. And this becomes a real problem in the run up to the crisis, the war scare in November 1983. Reagan is using very Belligerent, what is perceived as very aggressive language. He calls the Soviet Union an evil empire. After the shooting down of the Korean airliner at the end of August in 1983 uh, by a Soviet fighter pilot, Reagan accuses the Soviet Union of being a terrorist state committing atrocities. And this sort of language, the Soviet leadership are, are not used to hearing ab- about themselves. They they're proud men. They've They regard themselves as the nation that effectively destroyed Nazism in the Second World War. They're a superpower with an immense nuclear capability. And they don't like these insults that are coming from the man they perceive an ex-actor, in the White House. And they get increasingly riled and nervous by Reagan's aggressive tone. As far as he's concerned, he's just... uh, partly playing to his constituency in America, partly playing he has a constant hostility to communism, which is there throughout his life, from, from certainly from the 1940s onwards. He's just saying what to him is obvious, what's natural, there's nothing unusual about what he's saying. But he's really upsetting the Kremlin leadership, who think there must be something else to this. They start thinking, well, this isn't just uh, a politician on the Huskins, you know, talking out to try and win votes. They begin to wonder if this is actually Reagan preparing the American people for the fact that he's going to go to war with the Soviet Union. Seems crazy now, but nevertheless, this constant belligerent aggressive tone was really um, misinterpreted in the Kremlin, by the Soviet leadership. And these are men who haven't travelled in the West, apart from Gromyko, the foreign minister. Uh, Most of them uh, have have only been in the West, if at all, for a few days of a a state visit. So they have no real understanding of how American political dialogue operates. And so could
3: you tell us a little bit about Reagan's counterpart in Moscow, um, Yuri Andropov?
2: Yeah, for almost 20 years, the Soviet Union had been run by Leonid Brezhnev. He'd been in his 50s when he took power uh, in the aftermath of the Khrushchev era. And he had almost seen a virtue in stagnation. Stagnation for him brought stability. So whilst he was determined to maintain the Soviet role in the Cold War by encouraging countries in the Third World to line up with the The communist socialist camp. Whilst he was determined to keep up the armaments expenditure in the Soviet Union, he did nothing to advance the economy. He relied upon the traditional industries. And uh, by the early 80s, he's almost a buffoonish figure. Whenever he's shown on TV, he's shaking, he's doddery, he can barely make speeches effectively. Um, He passes away in 1982. And after this period of stagnation, the Politburo, the leadership inside the Kremlin, decide they need a strong figure to take over. And they turn to the man who'd led the KGB, the Soviet Secret Service, um, since 1967, Yuri Andropov. He certainly was a hardliner. He was a tough guy. He hadn't appeared very much in public. Um, the West, Western intelligence agencies knew very, very little about him. They didn't even know if his wife was alive or not, because she hadn't been seen in public for such a long period of time. They didn't know anything about his views. But he was seen as a new tough guy who would come in, who would start the process of economic reform that many in the Soviet Union were thinking was absolutely inevitable. However, although he did start the process of reform and he promoted a new generation uh, of men who would eventually take over leadership of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev was one of his protégés. Yuri Andropov was not a well man. He was suffering from a variety of complaints, the worst of which was a, a kidney disease, which in the course of 1983... He took over in November, 82. In the course of 83, this got worse and worse and eventually led to him being put on a kidney dialysis machine. So as this crisis unfolds into the autumn of 1983, the Soviet leader was actually spending several hours a day uh, on a dialysis machine, which is very, very exhausting. And um, everybody describes how fatigued he looked but he also wasn't even in the Kremlin. His office had moved to a clinic, the conservator Clinic, just outside Moscow. So he was conducting the leadership of the nation, actually from a bed or a private room in a clinic outside Moscow. And it's difficult now to imagine quite what must have been going through his mind as he felt himself frail and weak physically, but trying to stand up, trying to confront, the, the united states militarily and politically and come november 1983 the poor man uh, is uh, the entire politburo the soviet leadership have to go out to the clinic every day to see him he never leaves his bedroom in the clinic
3: and so let's talk now about the pivot of your book which is the abel archer scare of november 1983 so could you first of all explain what exactly was abel archer
2: yeah um Every uh, year, NATO had this exercise called Able Archer, that rehearsed the process whereby NATO was confronted by the Warsaw Pact in a conventional war, and effectively lost. Uh, the Warsaw Pact troops vastly outnumbered NATO troops, and in any conventional confrontation, the, um, the NATO troops would almost certainly have been defeated in the battlefield. And so the purpose of Abel Archer was to go through the procedures for escalating a conventional war into a nuclear war. This was done in the form of an exercise at one of the NATO headquarters in, in um, Mons um, with a scenario that had been carefully worked out beforehand – and the purpose was for the NATO leadership to go through the stages whereby they asked the political leadership for authorization to use nuclear weapons. And the Soviets monitored this stage by stage. Uh, it was all done in the early stages in the open, open communications. And um, the uh, Soviets every year knew that this procedure went on, but... They had a plan to attack the West in the guise of military exercises by the Warsaw Pact. They therefore assumed that if the West was ever going to attack them, it would be disguised in the form of a of some sort of NATO exercise that would then become the real thing. And as this exercise, Able Archer 83 it was called, as this exercise unfolds, Uh, So the Soviets, very twitchy, very nervous, the Soviet leadership begins to convince, is this actually a regular annual exercise or is this a prelude to a full-scale nuclear attack upon the Soviet Union? And Abel Archer, the the, the exercise, gets to the point where the request goes in to the political leadership to authorise the use of nuclear weapons... And at that point, NATO changes all the codes it's using and the Soviets are then convinced this is not an exercise or the Soviet leadership. The Soviet people don't know anything about what's going on, but the the tiny group uh, of the paranoid Soviet leadership around Andropov convince themselves that this is not an exercise, but this is actually the real thing and that NATO is about to launch A full-scale nuclear strike upon the Soviet Union. So they prepare themselves uh, to be ready uh, or even to strike first if they believe that missiles are about to be launched against them. And I tell the story in the book how all elements of the Soviet nuclear deterrent were mobilized in the early days of November 1983. The giant missile silos are are readied for launch. The SS-20s are deployed uh, throughout the field. Their mobile nuclear weapons are, are deployed throughout the field to their hidden launch positions. Submarines are sent from their positions, mostly under the Arctic ice, from where they're going to launch their nuclear weapons, as they prepared to do. And in Eastern Europe... Uh, in East Germany and in Poland, the, the Soviet Air Force are put onto what's called strip alert, which means to say that they're actually, they have aircraft at the end of the runway with their engines going, waiting for the order to, to scramble. The Soviets are convinced that Able Archer, the exercise, is not an exercise, but actually is a prelude to a real attack upon the Soviet Union and its allies. And it's a terrifying moment. And on the night of 9th of November, 1983, the Soviet leadership prepare for a full-scale nuclear retaliation against Western Europe uh, and the United States. It's a truly terrifying moment, but it's a moment that happens in secret. It's not a moment like the Cuban Missile Crisis that happens very publicly, with the president warning the American people uh, of the dangers ahead of Americans looking out of their windows, trying to identify the nearest air raid shelter um, should Soviet missiles be launched against them. All of this happens with nobody uh, in the West realising how tense, how anxious, how terrified the Soviet leadership have become.
1: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com slash history extra. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily
2: on brand.
1: Wait, did that agenda just write itself?
2: Words appear, making this unexplainable case.
1: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds.
2: Really? The real mystery
0: is why I'm only learning this now.
3: Canva.com, designed for work. Both the Soviet Union and America at this point, and I guess Western European countries, have very sophisticated intelligence networks. So why was it that the Soviet spies, say, weren't telling them this is just an exercise? And on the other hand, how did the American intelligence network
2: not perceive how risky what they were doing was? It's a very good question. I think it's, it's a reminder of the fallibility of all of these systems, that if you have a political leadership that are absolutely determined that they know better, that the intelligence arms are, are really just, just feed in to what the politicians want to hear. So in the Soviet Union, starting By looking at the Soviet side, in the Soviet Union, the KGB had an exercise called Operation RIAN, which basically meant look for signs of uh, preparing for a nuclear assault in the West. And they'd identify what these signs would be. the mobilization of blood banks the the movement of people, the readying of uh, American and NATO military, all of these things would happen in advance of a, of a nuclear assault upon them and when you tell an intelligence agency go out and look for signs, go out and look for evidence of these things, invariably they come back finding those signs. we know that is the the, the history of intelligence when you say find me evidence of secret weapons they usually find some evidence and come back we saw that in the prelude to the Iraq war in 2003 and 20 years before that in 1983 the KGB come back with all sorts of stories all sorts of reports that in the big board that they had in the Lubyanka in the in the center of the KGB they were sort of ticking boxes and able to see more and more boxes being filled often for completely unconnected reasons about a week before the abel archer exercise uh, towards the end of october 1983 uh, there is a huge truck bomb in beirut this was launched by hezbollah against the American Marines who were uh, occupying Beirut in the aftermath of the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon. This had nothing whatsoever to do with U.S.-Soviet or Western-Eastern relations. But as a consequence of this truck bomb, the Americans put all their bases around the world on maximum alert for terrorist attacks. The Soviet intelligence organization, the KGB, pick up on this and say, ha-ha, there we go. This is evidence that the US military and NATO are hunkering down in preparation of a nuclear attack. A few days before Able Archer, yeah, the NATO exercise begins in November 1983, Reagan launches an attack upon the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, which happened to be Commonwealth territory. Margaret Thatcher objects strongly to a US assault upon Commonwealth Territory. There's a lot of backwards and forwards communications between London and Washington. The KGB pick up on this and say, aha, any Western attack upon the Soviet Union, there will be a lot of communication between London and Washington. And all of this information builds up to... Operation Able Archer, this NATO exercise that practices the launch of nuclear weapons. And on the 9th of November, 1983, NATO, the NATO exercise goes up to its sort of highest level where the NATO military leadership is requesting from the political leadership in America and the United Kingdom authority to use nuclear weapons. And by this point, the Soviets are so terrified that they've actually convinced themselves this is not a war game, this is not a military exercise, this is the real thing. And they ready their entire nuclear arsenal. And on that night of the 9th of November, 1983, fingers hover over the nuclear button in Moscow. Three individuals had the authority to launch nuclear weapons Uh, Andropov and two senior military figures. Uh, And on the night of the, as I say, the 9th of November 1983, they are preparing to launch uh, nuclear weapons against the West. A man with the Chegets, which is the Soviet equivalent of the nuclear football, which is more familiar in the West. There's always um, a few paces from the president, a man with a briefcase which has the nuclear codes. At any time, 24-7, the US president can launch nuclear weapons. So the equivalent in the Soviet Union, the man with the equivalent to the nuclear football, sits up with Andropov in his clinic through the night of the 9th of November. It is a truly terrifying moment, but it's not picked up in the West. It's not like the Cuban Missile Crisis that happens very much in the public domain with the president making speeches on television, warning of the dangers. Uh, This happens in secret behind closed doors of a clinic in in Moscow where Yuri Andropov is on a dialysis machine. It happens in the central nuclear bunker where the uh, other military leaders have retreated, um, all waiting to press the nuclear button. I think it's probably the most terrifying moment of the Cold War. More terrifying than the Cuban Missile Crisis, because nobody in the West had any sense that fingers were hovering over a nuclear button, that the, that the end of the world was literally nigh. The Soviet leadership had managed to convince themselves that an impending attack from the West
3: was due. Why ultimately did they not press a nuclear button, and what, what was missing then to
2: stop them doing it? Very luckily, the Soviet leadership in the early 80s were men who'd all lived through the Second World War, they'd seen the massive destruction in the Soviet Union, roughly 27, some historians say 28 million dead, Uh, huge areas of industry, of agriculture, of infrastructure, utterly devastated, completely destroyed by the Germans during the course of their advance. And then as they, as the Germans retreated, the scorched earth policy just obliterating everything behind them. So, those men who were in their 60s and 70s in 1983 had lived through the tragedy, the destruction, the ghastliness of the Second World War, and they were going to be quite hesitant about launching a sort of suicidal attack, knowing that had they attacked the West, then their um, then. Western missiles would have been launched on the Soviet Union so in a sense it was the the hesitation of waiting to see waiting that little bit longer to see uh, that saved the world it was the fact that these men had seen the obliteration the destruction of the second world war and knew that nuclear destruction would be on an even greater scale that meant they just waited that that bit longer the night passed the NATO exercise came to an end. The NATO generals patted themselves on the back uh, and off they went to have a have a nice breakfast. Well, that was a good exercise, wasn't it? Uh, we did a good job there and they go home. And the moment, that particular moment of crisis is, passes.
3: Had the Soviet Union decided this, this is real and we're going to have to attack first, do you have any sense of what kind of carnage would have unfolded
2: well the there were several uh, different layers to the soviet nuclear arsenal there were huge uh, missile silos with 120 tonne ss-19 missiles that were targeted uh, on military sites in the u.s and in western europe there were the mobile ss-20 missiles that were targeted on Western European sites. There were submarines that were deployed, some of them underneath the Arctic ice, uh, again, with huge intercontinental ballistic missiles that, that would have obliterated many of the cities in Western Europe and the United States. I mean, it's, it's difficult to exaggerate the scale of the carnage that would have unfolded. Scientists at the time were predicting um, a nuclear winter that so much destruction, so much pollution, effectively, uh, nuclear pollution would go up into the environment that even the areas that hadn't been targeted would suffer from a, a nuclear winter, that the climate would be completely transformed. So probably what we were looking at is not just the destruction of the United States and Western Europe, but almost a global wide destruction. And of course, the American missiles that would have been fired in retaliation would have destroyed most of the Soviet Union, China, most of Asia, So I don't think it's too unreasonable to say we were looking at at the end of humankind in November 1983.
3: We talked only about this idea of mutually assured destruction, this idea that both sides knew that a nuclear war would be catastrophic. So why did that almost not work in 1983? Why did the Soviets believe America would risk, you know, global meltdown?
2: The Soviet leaders were convinced that American technology was better than theirs. That there were several reports came back into Moscow of computers that were just coming in at a wide scale in the in the early eighties. We take them totally for granted as as uh, part of everyday life today. But in the in the 1980s, they were still sort of coming in. But reports came back to the um, Soviet Union of primary schools in America, each primary school having several computers, whereas in the Soviet Union, the computer was still very, very much a rarity. There were a few military and state computers, but certainly they hadn't got into sort of private hands. So the Soviets had convinced themselves that the Americans had a sense of technical and technological superiority and that Reagan believed he could fight a nuclear war and win. That was why they thought that he was going to sort of breach the mad principles of mutual assured destruction. They were convinced that the new generation of nuclear weapons, the Pershing missiles, the cruise missiles that the Soviets were convinced that the Americans believed they could launch these missiles, destroy the Soviet leadership, destroy the military bases, and still win a a nuclear war. We know now that, in fact, Reagan did not think that. But at the time, what you're getting in the mid-80s is both sides misunderstanding totally the other side. And I think one of the lessons of the Abel Archer story, the Soviet war scare of 1983, one of the messages of my book is how easy it is for a situation to get out of hand and neither side fully understands what the other side is thinking or what capability each side thinks the other has. And that's what happens in in 1983. It is really, I suppose, the last paroxysm of the Cold War, but it is a point where both sides believe the other think they can win a nuclear confrontation.
3: As you mentioned, the Cuban Missile Crisis was played out in full view of the world. At what point did the West, and specifically the US leadership, realise what might have happened in November 1983?
2: Well, it's a very good question, because certainly there are some parts of the American intelligence system picks up on, on what's going on. The uh, National Security Advisor, Bud McFarlane, who I met and spoken to about all of this, um, He gets wind of this Soviet anxiety uh, during the course of Abel Archer and he discusses it with the president. The president is disbelieving. The president, Reagan, says they can't really believe that I would press the nuclear button. They can't really think that all my aggressive rhetoric, accusing them of being an evil empire, accusing them of being a terrorist state, they can't really think that I would have actually used nuclear weapons against them. And Bud McFarland, his national security advisor as well, Mr. President, it looks as though they just about did. They did believe you were going to use nuclear weapons. And this has a a profound effect on Reagan. It makes him want to reach out. It makes him never want to get to the point again where his actions could inadvertently do what he's deeply opposed to doing. He could actually set off a nuclear war. He could ignite a nuclear war in error. The last thing he actually wanted ever to do, go to, to use nuclear weapons, he could provoke the other side without even realising how dangerous it was. So the CIA start a series of investigations into... What went on. And British intelligence plays a very substantial role here because we have a double agent in a senior position in the KGB, Oleg Gordievsky, who is part of the alert that the KGB are put into um, by the Kremlin leadership. And he is reporting this back to his MI6 minders in London. They pass this on to Washington as well, who, again, initially are disbelieving. Don't be ridiculous. This is Soviet disinformation, they say. They're trying to fool us. They didn't really think we were going to attack them in November 1983. And MI6 are saying, well, our man, our mole, our man right at the top here is saying, yes, they did. They were genuinely frightened. They were panicking. So various bits of information gets back to Washington, gets back to the White House. And it really changes the way that... Reagan begins to think about the Cold War and the confrontation with the Soviet Union. And he's determined that he must, when the time is right, must reach out, must talk to the Soviet leadership. He needs to establish a link. He never met any of the Soviet leaders apart from Gromyko, the foreign minister, and the um, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Dabrinin. Uh, Reagan had never met other senior Soviet officials. And he begins to realise he's got to get to know these people. They've got to get to know him. They've got to build up some sort of rapport. So this supremely dangerous incident, this supremely dangerous moment will never be repeated.
3: And then Reagan famously goes on in the mid and later 80s to actually build this rapport with Gorbachev. And together they start diffusing the Cold War and potentially bring about its end. So can we trace a direct link from the Able Archer scare to essentially the end of the Cold War?
2: I believe we can. I believe that there is an absolute connection between Reagan's reaction to what he's told about the Soviet panic, the Soviet war scare in November 1983, really makes him want to reach out. He can't initially. Andropov dies uh, of his kidney disease early in 1983. He's replaced by yet another ancient figure who's probably even more frail, uh, Chernyenko, probably even more frail, Than Andropov had been. But in 1985, there is a complete change in leadership. A new generation takes over. Mikhail Gorbachev is appointed by the Politburo's General Secretary as the Soviet leader. And it's at that point that Reagan reaches out, both sides reach out, say we, we must meet, we must get to know each other. Uh, and I believe there is a direct link from the Abel Archer, the war scare of November 1983, through to the first of the summits at Geneva, uh, and then the the summits that follow the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that begins the process of demolishing the nuclear threat, or at least reducing the nuclear threat.
3: And just finally, I'd be interested to know about how you actually came across this story and then decided to write a book about it?
2: Uh, I first came across the hints of the story of this crisis in 1983 about 20 years ago when I was working with Jeremy Isaacs and others on a, on a series, a television series called The Cold War and I wrote the book of the series with with Jeremy and at that point we knew very little other than there was rumors of a panic in the Soviet Union serious panic in November 1983 but there was very very little known about it there is a reference to this in the book but but really no, no depth because we simply didn't know what had happened and how serious this moment had been in the late 2000s 2007 2008 I made a documentary program Uh, produced a documentary program about the story. By then, we knew quite a lot more. But historians were still saying to us, if you find out what went on, please tell us, because we'd like to know what exactly happened in, in 83. And then in the last few years, the National Security Archive, which is a part of George Washington University in Washington, a group who used the Freedom of Information Act very effectively in the United States to sort of crowbar information out of the federal administration In Washington, they were getting more and more evidence. In fact, they've got about a thousand documents in the last couple of years about the war scare in November '83, documents that had previously been absolutely top secret, the highest level of uh, governmental confidentiality. They've got these documents out. And it's these documents, as well as the previous research that I've done, that enables me, I think, now to tell, I hope I'm right in saying, really for the first time ever, the full story of the unknown Cuban missile crisis, of the war scare of November 1983, that I argue it was the most dangerous point of the Cold War.
3: That was Taylor Downing. 1983, The World at the Brink, is published today, the 26th of April, by Little Brown. And you can read a piece by Taylor on the Abel Archer Scare in issue 10 of BBC World Histories, which goes on sale next month. OK, well that's about all for today's episode, but do join us on Monday for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.